Welcome to the Sex and Psychology Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Justin Miller. I am a social psychologist and research fellow at the Kinsey Institute and author of the book, Tell Me What You Want, The Science of Sexual Desire and How It Can Help You Improve Your Sex Life. I know that many of you listening to this show are sex educators, and many more are thinking about pursuing a career in this area. However, making a sustainable living in this field can be a lot harder than it sounds. Despite all you've heard about how sex sells, it's actually a tougher sell than you might think. So in this episode, we're going to be talking all about the business of sex. Sex ed is incredibly important work that can also be highly rewarding. After all, that's why I do what I do. But there are a lot of challenges to navigate when you're talking about a controversial subject like this on a daily basis. For one thing, there's the constant fear of censorship, especially on social media. Then there's the question of how you even get paid. Most of the sex educators I know work for themselves, like I do. Being your own boss can be great, but building a successful business is really hard work. So we're going to explore tips on how to navigate the challenges successfully and grow a career in the business of sex. My guest today is Danielle Bezalel, also known as DB. She holds a degree in public health from Columbia University and is the creator, executive producer, and host of the Sex Ed with DB podcast. This is going to be an amazing conversation. Stick around and we're going to jump in right after the break. In today's increasingly digital world, it's more important than ever to understand the intersection between sex and technology and also to preserve our rights and privacy. For a deep dive into these issues and more, attend this year's Securing Sexuality Conference, which will be held October 19th and 20th in Detroit, Michigan. This event will bring together hundreds of sex therapists, IT security professionals, medical providers, researchers, and advocates. Securing Sexuality is the premier conference for people who are passionate about promoting sex-positive, science-based, and secure interpersonal relationships. Attendees will come away with a deeper understanding of and appreciation for the challenges and solutions to building healthy relationships against the backdrop of emerging technologies, while also cultivating a meaningful global community of colleagues. Continuing education credits are available for qualified professionals. Check the show notes for the link or purchase your pass to the Securing Sexuality Conference today at securingsexuality.com. That's securingsexuality.com. If you love the science of sex as much as I do, consider becoming a friend of the Kinsey Institute at Indiana University. The Kinsey Institute is the world's premier research organization on sex and relationships, and you can help them continue the legacy of Dr. Alfred Kinsey, whose pioneering research changed everything we think we know about sex. Visit kinseyinstitute.org to make an impact. Your donations can help support ongoing research projects on critical topics. You can also show your support by following Kinsey Institute on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thank you for supporting Sex Science. Hi, DB, and welcome to the Sex and Psychology Podcast. Thank you. Hello. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Thank you so much for joining me. So we're going to be talking all about the business of sex today. But before we get into that, let me first ask you how you got into the world of sex education. What drew you to this area? Sure. So there are always two things that I talk about when I get this question. The first is that my mom is an OBGYN and has been my whole life. So I've always been really used to 
talking about periods. And I talk about how she used to come home from a really long work day and bring home a box of pizza. And we'd talk about placenta over pizza. Uh, (laughs) And so uh, we were very comfortable, me and my two brothers, I think, from a very young age, talking about sex and learning about it and all the things that came along with bodies and relationships and such. And then The second thing is that the year after I graduated from college, I went to Israel for a year and taught English there. And my teaching cohort went on a field trip one day to a super religious community in Jerusalem. And essentially, there was a main Orthodox rabbi there. I don't know if he was the spokesperson of the town or what exactly was going on, but he was our contact, our point of contact for the day. And he showed us around and we went to this beautiful synagogue and we were chatting and joking and he's kind of talking about his customs and traditions and everyone in the room is Jewish. So there's not really a bunch of culture shock, but Orthodox Judaism is very different than Reform Judaism and everything in between. And he kind of offhandedly mentioned that he has five daughters and when each of them reach the age of 17 or 18, they get married off by the matchmaker and they don't learn about sex until their wedding night when they have it for the first time. And everyone in the community prays that they get pregnant that night. I don't know if he was proud of this or if he was just saying it so matter-of-factly, but in my 21-year-old body at the time, I got very, very fiery and very angry at hearing those injustices. And I was the only one in the room of like 40 people who raised my hand and tried to challenge this person and said, well, what about what they want? What if they're not ready to be mothers? What, you know, what about consent? I remember rattling off a bunch of questions and he kind of looked at me and furrowed his brow and waved me off and said, that's just how it goes here. Kind of next question. And so it was that moment. I remember going home that night and that weekend and looking into masters of public health programs and uh, trying to figure out how to be a sex educator and what that would really look like and feel like. In between, you know, then and now, I started my podcast about six years ago, you know, after Trump got elected. I think that was a big a big piece of it, too, of wanting to fight back against that norm that all of a sudden was there for many of us, for all of us in, in the U.S. And then I went to grad school for my MPH at Columbia with a certificate in sexuality and reproductive health. And I've been doing my podcast in total for six years and for as a full-time job for the past two years. Thanks for sharing that. And, you know, I ask a lot of people this question and never quite heard that exact journey before. Yes, quite unique, I think. It is unique. And, you know, the part you mentioned about some people not learning about sex until their wedding night, I think to a lot of people, it's surprising that in 2023, when we're recording this, that that still happens. And it's common in many parts of the world. People don't get sex education. You know, I distinctly remember... I think I've talked about this before on the show. When I was teaching at Harvard, we had a lot of students who were studying there from other cultures, international students. And in my human sexuality course one semester, I remember one of these students coming up to me afterwards and she told me that she was so grateful for my course because when she was coming over here to study at Harvard from China, her parents basically put her on a plane and said, you know, we wish you well and everything, but don't get pregnant. And she said, I didn't know what that meant. Like, I didn't know how pregnancy happened because they didn't get any kind of sex education or sex talk from their parents. And so, you know, it's one of those things, like as a sex educator, you can't assume that anybody knows anything about sex because our experiences with it are so diverse, especially when you add in that cultural element. 
In fact, we should assume that most people know nothing because we do know <laughs> about the horrificness that is the laws of sex education or lack thereof in this country. And yeah, it would be safer to assume that most people don't know much. Yeah. You know, I find myself sometimes saying, oh, do I need to talk about this or mention this? It just, you know, to me seems basic, but I realized and have come to realize over time that no, it's, it's not basic information. Like it's fundamental. It's important for people to learn because many people just never had any experience with sex ed at all. Totally. Yeah. So let's talk about being in the sex business. Now, something I've said before on the show is that everybody seems to think that sex sells. There's this perception that if you're in the business, must be pretty easy because everyone's interested in sex, right? And people have said things like this to me before, you know, things along the lines of, of course, you've sold a lot of books because you write about sex and sex sells. But sex is not as easy to sell as people might think, whether in the form of a book, an app, a podcast, a social media post, a sex toy, you name it. It's actually really hard. So as a starting point, tell us about some of the things that can make sex hard to sell when you're in the business of sex education. I would love to. I really like talking about this a lot because it's only really a very insular conversation that I have with other sex educators. Very rarely do we really get articles written about this, or if we do, it's maybe a one-off and no one really follows up with it. Nothing changes. And so I'm really grateful that we're talking about this right now. But essentially, if we really start at social media, right, like I have followers on Instagram and followers on TikTok, and that's a big part of my business about the way in which that I'm able to educate people and promote my podcast, as well as sell advertising space and what have you. And so the issue that I come across still now, six years later after starting my Instagram and three years later after starting my TikTok is not only the censorship, right? Many of us sex educators can't spell the word sex correctly. We can't say the word vagina. I know a lot of my sex educator friends say smitteris instead of clitoris to not get dinged by the algorithm. So there's already this issue of us being censored and not being able to say exactly the right information that we want to say. But if we do that, and even if we censor ourselves, there is still this risk of an individual on the other end or a bot catching that and understanding the intention behind what we're trying to say and deleting our post, potentially suspending our accounts. And in the worst case scenario, knock on wood, it has happened to many, many people, completely banning or permanently deleting accounts. And this is people's livelihood. Again, this is like a major way that I personally pay my rent and pay my bills and support myself. And I love the food bloggers, right? Someone who makes grilled cheese, right? <laughs> like they are, have a way less likelihood of getting their content taken off of the platform because they are not trying to educate people about their bodies and they are not trying to talk about abortion or other things that these people empower at, on these platforms that they deem unacceptable or not age appropriate, you know? So that just in and of itself is a huge challenge. Yeah, it absolutely is. And, you know, it's something that I've encountered in all of my years being a sex educator on social media. Certainly there's variability from platform to platform. You know, in my experience, 
I've never had content taken down on Twitter or Reddit, but the meta platforms and TikTok, you know, they're another story. And I've had to learn to be very careful in not just what I post, but how I say things to minimize that risk of censorship. I cannot bring myself to say segs instead of sex or it, it's just, it feels so unnatural to Demeaning. me. To, yeah, to self-censor and not even be able to say the word sex. So I can't bring myself to do it. And, you know, maybe my content doesn't have as much reach because I'm not self-censoring as much as some other folks are. It's tough. It's tough to really say. And the whole thing about SEGS, what you're referring to is spelling it S-E-G-G-S. A lot of sex educators started to do that instead of spell the word sex correctly to try to, you know, obfuscate that algorithm and just really get through to people. And so what we did as kind of a tongue-in-cheek fuck you to the algorithm, (laughs) we created an entire series called The Segs Ed Show, and it was completely egg-themed. And we had a lot of puns about, like, chickens and eggs and, like, silly things that were just really, really... I found it very funny. It was a, a scripted series where each video was one minute and each episode had a different theme. So one was unlearning fat phobia, one was advocating for trans rights. Uh, Go check it out. We have our Seg Zed series on YouTube and TikTok and Instagram. But yeah, the whole having to misspell the correct word for fear of getting your content taken down where, you know, middle schoolers are learning about sex. Like 12-year-olds are on this app and like it's not our fault that parents and other adults in their lives are so uncomfortable themselves about learning about sex that that influences algorithms and laws and all of these things that we as sex educators have to work around. Yep. So many things we have to work around and those fucking algorithms. I mean, (laughs) the worst. They're the worst. I love that you took a stand against them and, and fought back. But I'm curious if you have any tips you can share for other folks in terms of navigating this. I mean, aside from trying to like speak in code, how can you reduce the risk of you know getting shadow banned or suspended while still being true to your mission of providing sex ed? Yeah, I think one and not to go back to the egg thing, but I do have an egg, like an egg thing again, which is don't put all of your eggs in one basket. I think that is like the perfect way that I would describe that because for us, a way that we've really hedged our bets, so to speak, is that we have created platforms all over the place. We have a YouTube, we have a TikTok, we have a Twitter, we have an Instagram, and we have a podcast. And for fear of potentially having one of your platforms taken down, if we were only on Instagram and we had a million followers on Instagram, that was our only platform, and then it got taken down and nobody listened to us and we weren't able to go back up, we would be shit out of luck. Like we would be really in trouble. And I would seriously have to reconsider my career if I wasn't able to get that back. And so for us, what we really try to use our social media platforms for is to direct people to the podcast. And even if we're not talking about it every post, we're always keeping that in our link tree. We're always once a week posting if we do have a new episode so people can be reminded. You know, if I'm on other podcasts like this one, I'm talking about our social media so people can listen and go follow and engage and then go to the podcast. And so I think the idea is make sure to not 
really, really invest only in one platform because the more that you are able to relate to fans or friends or followers on different platforms, the more likely you are to be able to keep those if one of them goes awry or, you know, if Elon Musk renames Twitter, what is it? Zeet? I have no idea what the new (laughs) name even is. It happened like today or something. But Essentially, point being, you can't trust just one of these platforms to be everything for you. You have to really spread yourself a little thinner than maybe you would like. Yeah, I think that's such great advice. And anybody who runs any kind of business, like social media is an integral part of it these days. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there was a point in earlier in my career where I was on a few different platforms and my Facebook was growing faster than anything else. And I racked up like 20,000 followers on there and I'm like not getting a lot of traction elsewhere. And I almost like quit the other platforms and went all in on Facebook. And I'm so glad I didn't do that (laughs) because at some point Facebook changed their algorithms and the growth for that platform just like stopped. And now Twitter and all of my other platforms have exceeded like where that was before. And so you can never know like what's going to happen with an algorithm change. If one of these platforms is going to get shut down, if your account gets suspended. So yeah, don't put all your eggs in one basket for sure. Or all of your segs. <laughs> I yes, feel like all that, of your segs. Yeah, it's gonna keep going back to that. But yeah, that's that's amazing, by the way. Facebook, I feel for me personally, was really, really hard to grow on. We've kind of given up on Facebook as a platform for sex ed with DB, even though we have something like whatever, a thousand followers and a thousand friends, whatever. They have like different things on there, different like tiers. But I find it very challenging to grow on there. And as you said, if algorithms are shifting and changing. It can be really, really hard to convince yourself to keep it up on all of these platforms, but you need to figure out what strategy works best. Yeah, absolutely. So let's talk about how to make a living as a sex educator. You know, I get a fair number of emails from folks who say, how can I get a job like the one that you have? And it's a difficult question for me to answer because I never intentionally set out to do what I'm doing right now. You know, for me, all the way through college and grad school, I thought I was going to be a professor for my entire life. Mm -hmm. And I actually didn't think that I had the training or skill set to do anything else. And so when I initially started my blog and my social media accounts, like that was a hobby. It wasn't a way to make a living. And I just wanted to get better sex ed out there because there's so much shitty sex ed online, right? So after I'd built up a presence and a following, opportunities started to come my way. You know, I got hired to write for major media outlets and then that led to a book deal and then that led to consulting and other opportunities. And, you know, I got to the point where my side gig, my hobby, ended up earning me more money in a given year than working as a college professor. And that's part of like what gave me the ability to say goodbye to full-time academics and do this as my job instead because Mm -hmm. it became financially sustainable. I had the security to be able to do that. But that was only after many years of building my own business and then realizing that it could become a job in and of itself. So tell us a little bit about your experience in this regard and any tips you have for creating a sustainable business in the world of sex ed. I would love to. First of all, huge congratulations to you. You are someone who, and we didn't really talk about this offline at all, but now's the perfect time to share. I always looked at you and your podcast as like goals for me and my (laughs) podcast. You were like always in the top sexuality podcast. And I was so impressed with your brand and your guests. And I think like 
it's very cool to be able to even talk to you about how we're both able to make livings now. It feels like a very cool full circle moment. So major kudos to you for doing everything that you've been doing. And yeah, I I totally relate to this idea of, okay, I started this with the idea that it would be a hobby because in the beginning, there's no way for you to think anything else. If the money's not really coming in, then you're like, well, I guess I'll just, this is what I do for fun. You know, it's like I exercise, I go to karaoke and I do my podcast and it's kind of like, these are my different hobbies. And so for me, I also didn't think that this was a thing for me to be able to create my own niche in this way. I just every day really enjoyed what I was doing. And eventually I'm here, you know, it's, it's like a, and like you mentioned, it's not an overnight thing. It really, really was me working very hard and me having amazing team members and people who I've been able to now pay as contractors. But in the beginning, it was all volunteer. It was very much a thing where I reached out to folks on Facebook, uh, six years ago in, 2017, June of 2017. And I made a Facebook status and I was like, Hey, I'm thinking of creating this podcast who is potentially interested in joining and volunteering with me. And I mentioned, I wanted to be about sex ed. I wanted to interview people from the Bay area, learn about how we can revolutionize the way that we talk about sex. And I had like 10 volunteers join me to do like social and fundraising and editing and all of these little, granted, we could probably had like five, we didn't really need 10, but there was clear excitement there. And so for the first season of my podcast, I didn't make any money. In fact, I probably lost money or, you know, maybe we started to go fund me. And I thought at the time, again, things that you learn along the way that we needed all this fancy equipment and a fancy microphone and all these mm-hmm. things. So we fundraised like 700 bucks to get the audio equipment. And that was it. And so that was like the first six months that I was doing this. And then what I did was I started working for a sex tech company called O School, O dot School. And they are based in Oakland. And they were really my first introduction to creating video and education content for a sexual health company. And so I was being paid hourly by them. And then once season one of Sex Ed with DB ended, I approached them and I was like, hey, how would you like to be the sole sponsor of Sex Ed with DB season two? And that's really the moment where I realized I could be making some money from this. Once we started to get a little bit of a following, it wasn't any, anything to write home about. It was probably like, like a hundred or 200 people tuning into every episode at that point or something like that. But it really felt like this whole social media and podcast advertising space was just starting to pop off in like the mid 2010s around then. Ever since then, I've really been able to charge a little bit more every season, charge a little bit more. Once we get more on social media, I'm able to open up this idea of social media advertising. And then what really opened the door for me was I got my MPH from Columbia from 2018, graduated online in 2020 because the (laughs) pandemic had just started and I couldn't get a job. I was like looking for different kinds of ways to basically meld my background from UC Berkeley in film and media studies. And I minored in education. I love teaching. I love being able to figure out how to tell people stories with my master's of public health. And it really like was clear to me. I had already started my podcast. I was starting to grow We made a TikTok in May of 2020, 
And our first video went completely viral. It got like hundreds of thousands of views. Pretty much immediately, we got like 35,000 followers within a week. And that moment really allowed for me to figure out how to be serious when it came to the amount that we were charging these brands to work with me and my team for essentially what was advertising space on our social media and our podcast. So that's kind of a long-winded answer, but it's it's because it took a long time. And I think I'm still yeah. figuring out how to grow and still figuring out how to work with brands and and what this influencer space really looks like. Yeah. There's a lot of important advice there, but one of them is that, yeah, you can't expect this to happen overnight. It takes time and there might be stumbles and things that happen along the way, but you have to have like the dedication to see it through. And, you know, I think a lot of podcasts end prematurely that are really good that could have gone on, but people gave up on them because they just weren't growing as fast as they would have liked. And when you can't see those results, it can be hard to to stick with something. So yeah, Mm. it takes time. You often need to have like a day job to be able to pay the bills. Support you, yeah. While you're building a business like this, uh, because it's hard to do otherwise. Um, But you know, something else too that I think is important is talking to other people in the space and getting advice. You know, when I was starting to charge for my services, like that was a totally foreign concept to me because I was used to just getting a steady paycheck from a university. And so it's like, what is my time worth? <laughs> you know. Mm-hmm. And so I talked to other folks who had experience in industry just to figure out like, how do you even set an hourly rate? Like that's a hard thing to do, to know your price, to know your value. And so talking to others, I think can be a really helpful way when you're first getting started here. Absolutely. And once I did get started on TikTok, there were a few sex educators that kept coming up on my For You page that I was like, I like them. They're smart. I like the way that they create content. Like, I like that they are talking about queer issues and queer rights and all of these different things. And so what I did was I cold outreach to like five different sex educators. And I said, how would you like to join a monthly meetup group? We'll call it Sex Ed on TikTok set for short. And we'll meet every month for an hour and we'll talk about how much we're charging. We'll talk about how we can collaborate. We'll talk about the ways in which that we are struggling or what is coming up for us. And so that's what we did like around two years ago. And we've been meeting consistently and it's been really, really great because in this space, we don't really have coworkers, right? We don't really have other professors that we're able to go to and talk about our pay with and like start a strike or do whatever we need to do in order to get paid fairly for our time, effort, and energy and expertise. And so that group has been really, really valuable uh, in order for me to at least feel like I'm able to give advice and get advice. And it's really a fruitful way to create friendship and bonds with people in the space. Yeah, I love that. And speaking of making this a business that works, you know, something that I encountered early on that I found to be a little bit tricky was that there were a lot of companies that wanted me to work for them for free, Mm. right? Or in exchange for some free sex toys. You know, for example, they would say, you know, can you write some content for our company blog? In exchange, you'll get some exposure, or we'll give you a free sex toy if you review it on your website. Now, free sex toys are great and all, but you can't pay the gas bill or buy groceries with them. I've tried. (laughs) You can't. (laughs) You know, for the most part, probably not going to work. But what's your advice for navigating this? Because, yeah, it's important to build partnerships and relationships in the industry, but you don't want to give away too much for free. You deserve to get paid. How do you balance that? 
I think this is very tricky, but I do think it's a combination of understanding the reality of where you're at in your career and trusting your gut to know that whatever it is that you're asking for, ask for more. (laughs) Because the worst that someone could say is no, and that is the truth of it. And you deserve to try to figure out where you're at in your negotiation and how to make yourself feel good. So what I mean when I say really understand the reality of where you're at in your career. If you're someone who has less than one year of experience in the space and you have less than a thousand followers on social media, say, maybe in the beginning of your career, you would be comfortable with trading, you know, either product or, you know, exposure in some way for a blog post or for a social media post. And I don't think that there's anything wrong with that reality. Everyone starts somewhere and there needs to be an understanding that, there's this economy of, you know, the way in which that people are able to charge for their time and their expertise. And part of that is how big is your following and how much experience do you have and what what can you offer me, right? It's kind of this idea of, well, maybe I have under a thousand followers on social media, but I have a really dedicated audience of a hundred people who open my newsletter 75% of the time, right? So it's like really figuring out where you thrive and what you really want to show off and how you're willing to engage with brands in that very beginning. That being said, I think once a couple of those have been established, then it's really, really important to send those folks surveys to make sure that you get quotes from them and make sure that they would be potentially interested in recommending you or who can they connect you with. And then there are kind of these like leveling up opportunities that you might have. Maybe in the next brand deal, you'll you'll charge $250 for something that you instead just got product for. And then eventually as you grow and as you scale and get more and more experience and understand a little bit more about the landscape, then I think you should really be aggressive with charging and with really saying like, hey, I know that this is what my time and energy are worth. And then finally, I'll just say, do what I did, create your own sex ed group and ask other people based on their experience and their following, how much are they charging? How much do they feel is a really fair rate given the current market? It's really shifting and changing every single week. Something is different about this industry. There is nothing stagnant about it. There's a new platform, Threads, right? This new platform was created a couple of weeks ago. And all of a sudden, we're wondering, is this something, is this an opportunity for brands to be able to get advertising space on? Is this an opportunity for me to be able to grow? You know, so there's a lot to it. And I think it's like being nimble like being really aggressive and open and honest about like where you're currently at and how you can see yourself growing. Yeah. I know in the beginning for me, I gave a lot of work away for free, was writing for other places without anything in return. And I think the first time I got a paid writing gig, I was living in Boston and I did some writing for boston.com. It was an offshoot of the the Boston Club. That was the first time I ever got a paycheck for writing anything. It wasn't for much. I think it was like a hundred bucks. But it's something. Yeah, I was just excited to have something. Um, Nowadays, you know, a hundred bucks for an article is not going to work for the sheer amount of time and effort that goes into it. And so you're able to scale up and charge more as you build that experience. But yeah, there is in the beginning that need to kind of give away some content in order to build those relationships, build your portfolio, and then you can adjust from there. But again, it all goes back to the fact that this takes some time. Now, 
Something else that I also found to be a little tricky working in this space is that, you know, the bigger your audience gets, you know, great, but the more emails and the more DMs you start receiving. And they often take the form of sex and relationship questions. Mm. And sometimes people send pages and pages, like just these really, really, really long messages. And I really feel for these folks because I can tell they're really struggling. They don't know who to reach out to about this. But there just aren't enough hours in the day to respond to all of them. And, you know, on top of that, you also have the people who pull you aside at parties and want to ask for sex advice when you want to be off the clock. So how do you deal with setting boundaries when you have all of these personal requests for your time and expertise? This is a fantastic question. I don't think anyone has ever asked me this question before. (laughs) And it really makes me feel for people like doctors, right? I'm definitely guilty of this, of being like, so I have this thing on my foot. Do you think think you can look at it? And they're like, Danielle, we're on vacation. Like, I really don't want to do that right now. But I think that you're right in that there is this inherent trust, I think, that people have with you when you're talking about sex and we're talking about relationships. And sometimes, especially when certain influencers and content creators talk about their personal lives, people feel like, oh, well, I know you, so I can just ask you whatever kinds of questions that I want. And so more often than not, if we're getting a DM, I will direct them to my Google form that says, do you have an anonymous sex ed question? Feel free to ask it here. Because I think that allows people to have a space where they feel like they are able to ask their question. But of course, there's no guarantee that I'm going to get to that question. However, depending on my mood and how busy I am, if it's something as simple as copying and pasting a Planned Parenthood article that probably has the answer to that person's question, I'll try to do that because we usually get the same kinds of questions over and over again. And I'm sure we'll get into it, but, and I'm (laughs) sure you do too. It's like some form of like something about pregnancy, something about masturbation, and they kind of want to know like something about the details of those things. But I really do also try to make it clear, like, hey, I recommend that you go check out your provider, your healthcare provider. We cannot offer medical advice. Like, I think it's it's really important to be clear and unapologetic with what you can and cannot provide for people. But ultimately, if there is a podcast episode or something on our social media that would allow that person to be connected to a resource, then I feel confident recommending them to that resource. However, if we were getting like five of these questions a day, it's more like we're getting five every two weeks. It's like we're not getting as many. I don't know. It's kind of comes and goes in seasons. Sometimes it's more, Mm -hmm. sometimes it's less. But I do also try to connect people to people who they can talk to and ask their questions. So there's an amazing nonprofit an app called OKSO, where you can write in to a team of experts through a text-based like forum And the individuals in that group of whatever you're trying to get answers to will like text you back and give you some answers and resources. Uh, Planned Parenthood has a chat bot named Rue. That is a really helpful thing that people can go to. So yeah, I think it's a combination of stating what I can and can't do, directing people to the right resources or to my Google form and being really clear about my time and say like, hey, I'm not able to answer that. Like here are some other people who might be able to help you. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. Now, we've talked about some of the struggles and challenges of being in this industry, but, you know, for my last question, let's talk about the positive side. So what do you love most about 
being a sex educator and what are the perks of the job for you? This is the best job ever. I mean, I am thrilled to do what I do and run my own business in the sex ed field. I think there are so, so many wonderful parts about it. I think even if it was just the few people every couple months writing in saying, hey, I learned about what a master's of public health was because of you and I'm going to this program, like, thank you so much. Or people writing in reviews of the podcast being like, you changed my sex life with my husband. Thank you so much for what you do. Those alone are enough to keep me going. But I think I am very invigorated by being creative and figuring out how to work with brands that I really, really love and really trust and use their products myself. And I'm able to get people uh, information and education on those products and, and different ways. I think that part is really fun. I absolutely love interviewing people and hearing their stories and talking to them. A big part of our mission at Sex Ed with DB is that we center LGBTQIA plus and BIPOC experts in whatever field that they are in, in the sexual health space. And so I take a lot of pleasure in being able to advocate for those folks and give them a platform to share who they are and what their experiences are, because I think notoriously the sexual health space, definitely podcasting is very white. And so I try to really make sure that I, you know, chat with a diverse group of people and learn from them. I love that I get to make my own schedule and I love that I get to create silly but really fun internet content. You know, being someone who is like a performer and a singer and I did theater, like this is the perfect way for me to be able to perform for people in these like fun little ways through podcast hosting and through creating videos online. And yeah, I just love my work-life balance. I love not being able to work and not feeling guilty about it. I'm getting married next year. I love being able to kind of like, even though it's kind of stressful, don't get me wrong, wedding planning can be stressful. <laughs> um, yep. I love that I'm able to do that without needing to feel like, oh, I need to get back to my desk or, you know, it's like, I'm very much like in control of my own business and day. And that feels really, really empowering and very, very fun. And I totally agree. So yes, while there are lots of struggles and challenges when it comes to navigating the world of sex education and making that your full-time job. It's really the best job, you know? <laughs> There's so much joy that can come from it, not just because it's fun, but when you have that chance to impact other people, you know, the single best piece of feedback that I, I'd love to hear from people is that they feel normal for the first time or that their sex life or relationship is improved because of something we talked about on the show or something that they read on the blog or something they read in the book. Like, it's amazing that, you know, just a little bit of education can really go a long way in terms of improving people's lives. Absolutely. And one other thing that I didn't mention that I really love, but I really do, is conversations like this where we get to be transparent about money and about challenges and struggle and like how to teach people how to do this. And I'll quickly plug my workshop, which is all about building a profitable online sexual health brand. So if you are listening and you're like, I'm kind of interested in the field of sexual health and want to learn how I can be a person on social media or create a podcast or create workshops or curriculum and teach in the classroom, if that is something that you're 
really interested in, check out my website, sexedwithdb.com slash workshop, and you can learn all about what we will talk about in the workshop, what you'll learn, and all that jazz. So please feel free to check that out if that's of interest to you. Love that. And I will be sure to include a link to it in the show notes. Sweet. Thank you so much for this amazing conversation, DB. It was a pleasure to have you here. Can you please tell my listeners where they can go to learn more about you and your work? I would absolutely love that. Thank you so much for having me, by the way. This was so fantastic. Uh, if you want to listen to Sex Ed with DB, check us out wherever you get your podcasts. Check us out at sexedwithdb.com. On Instagram, we are at sexedwithdbpodcast. On Twitter and TikTok, we are at sexedwithdb. And if you want to check out all the amazing discounts that we have, because we are sponsored by amazing companies, amazing lube, amazing sex toys, amazing butt and gut product companies, there's all of these amazing, amazing products, uh, go to sexedwithdb.com slash discounts and check out my codes. But yeah, thank you so, so much for having me. This has been so great. Thank you again for your time. I really appreciate having you here. And thank you to my listeners. To keep up with new episodes of this podcast, visit my website, Sex and Psychology at sexandpsychology.com or subscribe on your favorite platform where I hope you'll take a moment to rate and review the show. You can also follow me on the socials for daily sex research updates. I'm on Twitter or whatever we're calling it now at Justin Lee Miller and Instagram at Justin J. Lee Miller. Also, be sure to check out my book, Tell Me What You Want. Thanks again for listening. Until next time. 